0: Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, a podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Episode 7 of the International Sonography Podcast. Lorenda and I would really like to thank you for listening to the show. From the beginning, we've had a list of guests that we are hoping to get to, and so far we've been able to plug along, and we are so grateful to our guests for their participation in trying to bring all of this information out to the sonography community. I'd also like to say thank you for hanging in there through all the hiccups. Um, We do all of our own writing of the show, editing of the show, so we know it's rough, but over time we'll get better, and we just appreciate you joining us on the show. Feel free to email us any questions or um, comments at internationalsonographypodcast at gmail.com. Today on the show, we would like to welcome our guest, Mr. Dale Sear. If you don't recognize the name, the most of you will be familiar with the company, which he has been the CEO of for the last 20 years, the American Registry of Diagnostic Medical Sonography. The ARDMS, now one of two companies under the umbrella of Intellios has been the predominant body of multi-specialty certification of sonographers. His involvement in our occupation dates back to 1979 when he attended Seattle University Diagnostic Ultrasound Program, founded and directed by Miss Joan Baker. We consider it a privilege, given his busy schedule, that we have the chance to sit down with him today. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Dale Seer. Dale, can we start off by asking where you grew up and how you got involved in the field of sonography?
1: Well, I grew up uh, on the Canadian border of Upstate New York, and I got involved in the field of sonography. Uh, I was going to uh, college in Syracuse uh, in the late seventies and uh, the uh, hospital there, the medical school there in Syracuse, uh, I read that they got a new machine called an ultrasound machine. This was in 1978, I believe. Okay. And uh, it intrigued me. Uh, and so I made an appointment or a point to go see what this machine was about uh, because I know I wanted to be in medicine. I didn't know what level. And, uh, this was one of the first ultrasound machines around, uh, and it was an articulated arm scanner, and a, uh, a woman was, was controlling this machine. Uh, I'm not sure at the time the word sonographer was there, but it was somebody doing that. And it, it intrigued me most of all because all the doctors were standing around her, and she was scanning, and they kept asking her, what is this, what is that, and everything else. And after the case was over, I was able to observe some cases, I asked her, I said, so are you a doctor? She said, no. I said, wow, so you get to do all this and tell the doctors what they're looking at? She said, yeah. I said, well, that, that's pretty cool.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I said, I think I might want to do that. So I, I investigated that and uh, uh, found out that actually four more ultrasound programs were just starting. And at that time, I think there was only three in the country, one of which was at Seattle University uh, under Joan Baker's program director. And uh, one thing led to another and I ended up I transferred out as a junior and uh, uh, ended up at Seattle University.
0: What did you think of the Pacific Northwest when you got there?
1: I fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Consequently, I lived there for nearly 20 years after I moved there and uh, uh, and, uh, still love the
0: Pacific Northwest. I think I'm biased, but yes, I do too. So growing up in upstate New York, did you know when you were in like high school age, kind of what you wanted to do going into college? Or I
1: think in high school, I thought I wanted to go into healthcare uh, because at that time healthcare was very prevalent. That's when a lot of you know more high tech medicine was happening, you know heart transplants, all the all the cool stuff. And so, growing up in that environment uh, in the seventies, healthcare was uh, very prevalent. Where like today, you know high tech technology is very prevalent for for, uh, I think, more high school kids, etc. Healthcare is within the realm, but probably not as prevalent as it was in the 70s.
2: Did you have family that were involved in healthcare?
1: No, I had no family involved with healthcare. care. Uh, that was just kind of where I wanted to, where I thought I wanted to go, and ended up yeah. working out.
0: Where were the other programs at the time? I know, Seattle University, and was it uh, Oklahoma? Yeah, at Oklahoma? Seattle University,
1: and then it was a Downstate State Medical Center in Brooklyn. Okay. And uh, and then the other one was at the University of Oklahoma. And I think Seattle University may have been the first one that started the year before. And I think that year, Downstate Medical Center was beginning. These were bachelor programs, bachelor degree programs. Um, And then I think University of Oklahoma and Downstate Medical Center started the same year, that that same year. So uh, by by a matter of a year or two, Seattle University had uh, the most uh, experience.
0: How was your experience at Seattle University?
1: It was wonderful. Uh, it, was a, it was a very good experience. I enjoyed not only the uh, learning of, of sonography and come to find out, which I did not know at the time, the, the, the level of what Joan Baker was or what she meant to the field of sonography. I had no idea until after I got in the program, but you know, I was learning literally from the founder of it all, yeah. uh, which was great. And uh, and also by the, State the University, I think the broader education, liberal arts education, you know, the, the broad scope of uh, education at Sanford, was very, very good, which I think uh, was very helpful.
0: So could you share with us uh, where you completed your education and where you obtained your clinical experience in the field?
1: Well, I, I completed my education in, uh, at Seattle University. Mm-hmm. And so I got uh, my bachelor's degree in, uh, in diagnostic ultrasound and, and a minor, I believe in physics and philosophy. And then I did my, at that time, it was a four-year program plus one. So it was really a five-year program. And so I finished, I graduated, and then there was a year of clinical. And uh, I did my clinical uh, at the University of Colorado in Denver. And then I also did uh, three months at the Applied Physiology Lab, which uh, was connected to Swedish at the time, which they were just doing continuous wave Doppler of, of necks under, under, the directorship of dr spencer
0: so when you went to denver what modality did you go to their specific or were you cross training or what
1: was it was high risk uh it was ge- what we call general now but it was abdomen but mainly uh high-risk ob okay
0: uh,
1: university of colorado was a referral center for several states uh and at the time still is but even at that time it was world renowned as a it's a pioneering department with research and development in ultrasound so i had the opportunity to go and uh uh, it was it was a wonderful experience. Uh,
0: Did you have a modality in school that was your favorite, or you had preferences? Uh,
1: it was it was fetal echo. Uh, fetal echo cardiology was just beginning, and actually the roots of that were happening there with pediatric cardiology and the sonologist and sonographer. So my interest was became high risk OB, and it was uh, at that time you know uh, fetal anatomy and uh, and more specifically fetal fetal cardiology
2: do i remember correctly then you ended up at the university of washington
1: i did i uh after my year was up i ended up uh getting a job at the university of washington and uh they hired me and i was there for uh, till 1996 um, and really uh, that was a general lab but uh, we really uh, there's a lot of research going on there under the directorship of dr larry mack mm-hmm. and so uh we had a team of uh that time, which was a fairly large department, like eight sonographers. Um, And to this day, I think that was the best uh, clinical sonographer team ever assembled. It was amazing. And uh, we did a lot of good work there. Uh, We worked very hard. We had a lot of fun. But it was was a very unique time in the field of ultrasound. It was very open, a lot of research, a lot of learning, discovery. And we provided uh, excellent patient care. So I was always very, very happy of, of that time.
2: Now, at some point, then you decided to pursue your MBA.
1: I did. I wanted wanted to get my MBA actually quite early in my career, but then because of all the work and research, etc. And then um, I decided probably that I thought I could make other contributions to the field, or at least into medicine uh, on the business side of things. Uh, Basically, wanted to become more of a decision maker uh, and. and so that's what led me to kind of get out of clinical and when uh, I uh, got my MBA. and I, My concentration was in corporate finance. And uh, so that's, that's what I did. That was, a, that was a two-year program.
2: What led you to uh, applying or considering uh, becoming part of the ARDMS?
1: It was co- a complete accident. Uh, actually, we moved from Seattle here to the Rockville area, and uh, I was uh, working at a startup in, in venture capital, and it was in technology, um, and it was re- really around that that area of uh, very beginning parts of the internet, and uh, it was around ed- empowerment through education and training uh, through the internet, these uh, couple startup companies, and literally one evening, I uh, got a phone call from a uh, a well-known sonographer that I knew for many years and asked me if I wanted, if I knew that ARDMS was looking for an executive director. And I said, no. And uh, and went on to ask if I would consider being the executive director. And I said, no, I was having a good time. I said, I was having a good time what I was doing. And, and one, you know, thought that career path more in the business side was of more interest to me and clinical medicine kind of got out of my blood, so to speak, uh, over the last previous two or three years. Um, But the phone calls kept coming, and after two or three phone calls, it was in September, I remember distinctly, then I did agree that I'm okay, I would apply, and I would agree uh, to be interviewed. And so I think it was in October, here in D.C., I was interviewed uh, for the position. I didn't even really know that the RDMS was in Rockville and, and once I did some research, the RDMS office was literally five miles from my house. Oh wow. So that was convenient. I was doing a lot of traveling in downtown DC every day and uh, so that 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 was ultimately one of the major things that Yeah,
0: that was a nice factor.
1: We go into interviewing sweetness. So uh, so I interviewed and one thing led to another and they offered
0: Wait, me What year was that? It was in nineteen ninety eight
1: Okay. Late 1998.
0: Well, operationally, what is the biggest changes for the ARDMS um, over the last decade or so?
1: I think that operationally the biggest changes so, is the ARDMS adopting to the field, so the changes in the field and to, to, and to scale, so to speak. Um, at the time I came on the ARDMS, I think there were about 20,000 or 25,000 certificates and ultrasound just was becoming more prevalent. Uh, you know and more people were doing it and so we operationally initially we had to really change our systems where we could deliver more tests basically give more people more people credentials. Uh, so consequently, from an operational perspective you know building departments, building staff, building capacity, uh, integrating technology as that was coming along uh, into the system And so uh, we're ultimately through the 2000s, continue to grow. We had to put in systems that could scale uh, with the technology. And today, where it is today, where you know handhelds and uh, you know, very low barrier entry uh, systems out there, and basically everyone has the capability of doing ultrasound. I think we, we're in a good position where we can scale to meet the needs of patient safety,
0: which is our mission
1: uh, around the world.
0: Now, when you came on, were they were they doing the testing the the computer based testing or were they still doing written exams?
1: They just started computer based testing the year or two before, um, and uh, and actually, ARDMS was one of the first uh, organizations to to do uh, formal tests on computers back in the early nineties. It was the uh, old physics test, uh, but one of my first uh, charges by the board was to, in fact. Uh, put videos on these exams, on these computer-based exams. And so the first charge was uh, in the adult echocardiography exam to put live videos on the exams. And that was never done before. And so actually ARDMS was the first medical organization to implement uh, videos uh, on the exams. And that was, we finally accomplished that in 2000 and delivered them in 2001 for the first time. So that, that was a big challenge because we were really pushing technology at that time. And uh, but it worked.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, was the biggest challenge like getting like quality pictures or the right frame rate to to be applicable for the exam, so that people felt it was a fair picture to judge it. Great.
1: Great question. It was all of the above, uh, but the real core was having the technology that could push, that could integrate video formatting into text formats that could be pushed to all the testing centers around the country at that time and Canada. And so to have that scalability and have the bandwidth, that wasn't even a term that we were using that, but to have the bandwidth to push that kind of uh, volume into the into the local servers, which is where it was, um, and those were being delivered by CD ROMs. You know, there was no streaming. So it was, these were secured, encrypted CD ROMs that were getting shipped around and they would load it up on the local servers and, you know, all the execution of the exams and the security and things of that nature at the time. And then embedding within that the code to actually execute a video uh, It was a big deal and uh, yeah. it was successful. And then from that, uh, we continued to grow with our, with our media in, in our exams.
0: Yeah. It's come a long way, you know, yeah. that time. So could you paint the current picture of the certification process for today's sonographer who is entering the field from school?
1: Well, I think uh, in today's world, my sense is from the students is that uh, much of the curriculums are kind of set up for success, where uh, there, there's better correlation between what's being taught and what's being tested, and the integration of the clinical is, uh, is, is much better. And so I think a student today going through a, a good program uh, has the ability, knowing that when they graduate, they have the basic knowledge and clinical, uh, experience to be successful for, for the airiness uh, certifications at that level. So I think that's a, that's that's really gelled over the last decade. Uh, before, I think it may not have been aligned as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, uh, what's being taught, what's being tested, what's being most important, what's being expected in the, the clinical field, I think, are, are in alignment
0: much better than and is it still? Is there a certain time frame expectation from when people graduate where they have to obtain? I know at the Seattle U program, it was I want to say six to twelve months that we had.
1: That's still uh, an institutional-based data. Um, I think that's smart to do that. Simply from a, from a knowledge perspective, you don't want to wait too long because you forget. But uh, I think that. There's still some variance there, but I would say the overwhelming majority of formal programs are having their students test uh, well, within the, well within the year after graduation. And with accredited programs, uh, they can test within the curriculum towards the end of their uh, clinical time of their senior year.
0: Yeah, when they're not quite graduated, but almost. Right. right.
1: Yeah. And then when you complete the course, you get your certification.
0: Yeah. Now, with people
2: that are looking to take their exams, you know, in the days when you and I took the paper tests, it was once a year. Um, Obviously, you have a very fine-tuned process now with electronic availability, but are there restrictions on how soon you can take a test or how uh, frequently if you need to take it for different specialties?
1: Right. Uh, Good question. There's... There's no limitations of how many tests you can take. Um, There's limitations of how many tests you can take in a day. So uh, typically, uh, really most the clinical tests are four hours, three to four hours, and so you're really limited to two tests per day. So if you want to take, if you're a new student, you want to take SPI and abdomen, you could probably take SPI in the morning and schedule it such, or you could do abdomen or OB or whatever in the afternoon, Um, and then the next day you could you could book yourself to, to take all these tests in a row if you like. Uh, I think most test professionals don't think that's a good idea. Your recall memory is probably pretty good, but if there's any analysis or th- synthesis type questions, you may not perform once you get more tired, mm-hmm. but, uh, but people do that. Uh, if you do fail an exam, uh, you do have to wait 60 days before you can sit for the exam again. Um, and there's data behind that to show uh, memory kind of decreases after about 15 to 20 days. And so if you're if you're trying to memorize the test, um, <laughs> that kind of goes away after about 20 days. So we wait 60 days. And, uh, even though you won't get the same exact test, uh, there should not be much recall or ability for memory to, you have to know the material to pass.
0: But yeah, there's no getting around that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: has the eligibility requirements for people being allowed to take an ARDMS exam changed more recently?
1: Not really. Uh, the eligibility criterion is still quite foundational from its founding. There have been enhancements on the on the prerequisites, uh, mainly in the uh, prerequisite two area where the accredited programs were. The biggest one over the last several years were... Students in accredited programs could, in fact, A, take the physics exam while they're still in school, which actually all prerequisites allow that. You can take the SPI once you complete a physics exam. But in the accredited schools, you can actually, once you get your clinical and you're in your senior year, you can actually sit for the ARDMS certification examinations, credentialing examinations, uh, before you graduate. Once you graduate and you have completed your class uh, course, and got your degree or whatever it may be, uh, then we release the certification that's been the biggest uh, prere- prerequisites uh, in that area the educational requirements the clinical experiences those have not really changed that much uh, in many, many years they're being looked at today as we speak and i would say over the next several years i think the community will see some some changes in the prerequisites but that, that that's like i said three or five years in the future
2: I know at some point, obviously, there was an on-the-job training eligibility because that's how ultrasound evolved. Um, but I thought that I remember that that had been working towards being eliminated. Yep,
1: that, that has. And uh, that kind of rolled into uh, the prerequisite one where you do have to have some levels of coursework. Uh, that's basically equivalent to an associate's degree uh, on that level, yeah. The OJT was, was uh, 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 diminished, so to speak, that pathway.
2: And you were just mentioning you expect that things might change in the next few years. Anything specific that comes to mind or more just thinking of the evolution of technology and educational programs overall?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of specifics of these changes, and uh, right now I'm not able to talk about them. Mm-hmm. We, have a dedicated, uh, we have a dedicated team of subject matter experts and educators that have been looking at this for a couple years, and that they probably have another year or two to go. Uh, and as they finalize their processes and recommendations that ultimately go to board approval, uh, that information will start being disseminated out. But uh, uh, they're doing a great job and really
0: uh, pe- meeting the needs, I think, of today's uh, student
2: educational programs. I'm guessing, and I don't know if you uh, care to share or not, but uh, JRC-DMS and JRC-CVT are sort of tied to some of that research or exploring as to where things are going. Are they involved with your conversations as far as you're looking at what might change in the future? I don't think I can say that they're directly involved, but I can say that we are sharing data uh, to
1: help all because they're also looking at uh, looking at changes, and I'm not quite sure, but I think sharing data across the organizations has been very helpful for all of us to make uh, better decisions.:
2: Oh, absolutely, I think that's very commendable. And uh, going back to the students that are sitting there for their electronic exams, so you know in the days when we took them with the paper tests, you took them in October and you might get your results sometime in December. Are they fairly instantaneous as far as, you know, they hit done with uh, the test on the computer and then what happens after that?
1: Right. There's two, two ways of looking at electronic uh, computer-based testing, which we call CBTs in the testing world. One is, in fact, you do go to a Pearson, Pearson Vue test center, uh, take the exam, and when you leave, you get your score report. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call that on-demand uh, scoring and that does happen with most ard examinations. And then there's another way that we call windowed examinations, and those windowed examinations are only offered twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall, and they're for a month at a time. Those examinations are are what we call our smaller volume examinations that doesn't have thousands and thousands and thousands of people taking them, like abdomen OB, uh, echo, and vascular. These are fetal echo, Pediatric echo, pediatric sonography. These are very focused, uh, small volume exams that may only have a few hundred or several hundred examinations a year. And uh, we do a window there. The reason being is that it's all based in psychometrics for measurements because we want the exams to be valid, reliable, and fair. And if you have lower numbers of test takers, the reliability and validity and, uh, cannot be measured as well if you're. If you're Spreading out two or three hundred cases across or tests all year, and so they they need to be looked at individually during these windows. So the spring window, there's actually a scoring analysis that's done at the end of each window, and that's why you still you have to wait the four to six weeks to get that. To if we have large exams that are several thousands, if not scores of thousands a year, like SPIs, I said, adenocarcinoma, adult, vascular breast. Breast exam. Um, that's when we can do the on-demand because there's so much data coming across that the psychometricians, uh, the, those are the specialists, the PhD statisticians that we have on staff that analyze like each question, each test, etc. They can analyze that consistently to assure that the fairness and the difficulty of the exams are are maintaining the ranges where they're supposed to be, and so uh, that that way the score reports can. Can come out on demand at the test center.
0: So you're saying, sorry, currently, if somebody sits for their fetal echo, did they get did they get the result instantaneously? Still, in okay.
1: The exams like fetal echo, pediatric echo, pediatric sonography, MSK, right now, yeah, uh, those are low volume exams, and they don't meet the threshold where you can have continuous uh, scoring. Those subsets of those populations need to be uh, reviewed. Uh, that And that just makes a higher quality. Did that
0: change recently? I, I thought when I took my fetal echoes that I, that I did get it instantly, but that was uh, you know, ten years back or so.
1: Yeah, yeah, that changed. Okay. We decided on the lower on the lower volume exams that we needed to move. Uh, for that. Um, if if exams are low volume, it just uh, from a from a quality perspective and a psychometric validity perspective, those really need to be done in a window in a windowed setting. For the reasons so those. Do they
0: get emailed the results, or they get um, mailed the results? How do they find out if they
1: pass? They get mailed the results, and also with ARDMS, you have these portals now. Uh, mm-hmm. You interact, and you have your ARDMS portal. We will be, and those scoring reports will be starting to get posted on, on your uh, ARDMS portal. You know the my your My ARDMS um, your interaction with ARDMS will be largely through that portal now and moving into the future. So. Your, your your test scores and things of that nature will just always be posted there for you.
2: And I'm assuming continuing ed in that portal and... That there's,
1: a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of things that happen to make uh, the registrant's life easier mm. um, and maybe be more of a central focus uh, on that. And those are the things we're working on all the time. Nice.
0: So in 2016, the ARDMS and the Alliance for Physician Certification and Advancement were brought to the umbrella of INTELOS. How has this
1: benefited the two organizations? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, as I said earlier, when we first started talking, the field of ultrasound has evolved rapidly, especially over the last ten years. It's largely been driven by technology, uh, the you know miniaturization of equipment, the cost effectiveness of uh, cost effectiveness of equipment, and so the the barriers to entry to obtain an ultrasound machine and to scan are very very low, and uh, and then. As that was happening in the mid 2000s, the RDMS board made a, actually a very bold decision, which was to have a dedicated physician exam, which was the RPBI for vascular. And so with the support of the American vascular surgeons, uh, we developed the first physician uh, certification examination uh, in the mid 2000s, went to effect the late 2000s. Then after that became MSK. And what we found was that the physician community, uh, their their needs and their wants were different than the sonographer. And what was happening within the ARDMS is that we were we were melding physician needs and demands with sonographer needs and demands, and it's just becoming complicated. And uh, and because of that, we decided that we needed to restructure to meet the. What we what we saw was even more proliferation of ultrasound around the world, and and so consequently, back in thousand and eleven, uh, the board made the decision that in fact we we're going to start a new start a new uh, organization called Intellios, and that was going to be an umbrella organization of really just to, for management and governance, and that would allow the ARDMS mess to go back to its roots, which would be a dedicated sonographer organization, you know by sonographers, for sonographers, Uh, the sonographer voice would be clear and loud. And then at the same time, for the physician end of things, uh, this is where the Alliance of Physician and Certification Advancement came up, APCA, and that's a separate council. And that's for physicians, by physicians, and the physician's voice to do. So each council can be doing what they need to get done. They do talk, cross-talk a lot because, you know, the shared vision, shared knowledge, shared whatever is there. But when it comes to making decisions for sonographers or making decisions for physicians, mainly whether it be eligibility or whatever criterion, that everyone is talking with the same voice within those councils. So the question, ultimate question is, was it successful? Yes. It went into effect January 2016. And uh, we're just at the end of our two years. Uh, we feel it's really a five-year program to really, indoctrinate the cultures, uh, also to make uh, a larger global impact with Atelios. And uh, we're pretty much right on track. And I'm very happy with where we are. Uh, the qualities of both councils are extremely high. The ard credentialing uh, credential program is as strong as ever. Uh, and the physician program with RMSK, uh, RPBI. Uh, we have RPBI China. We have a dedicated bachelor exam in China. Uh, MSK for the physicians is also looking to uh, grow in India, um, and then uh, when we did this, we also brought in a non-ultrasound uh, credential group of cardiologists for cardiovascular imaging for nuclear cardiology and cardiac C- cardiac CT. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the organizational structure just offers those type of opportunities uh, for the organization to to, to build to build high quality. Assessments across multiple, multiple professions.
0: It was the biggest drive for physicians to have their own, you know, alliance, own organization, driven by um, reimbursement or just um, further education. Or I know, I mean, I know that it, worldwide, a lot of the people practicing sonography are actually physicians and don't have right. sonographers. Right. That the expansion driving that. Right. I
1: think it really depends on the community and where it's located geographically. I think if we're talking in the United States, I think, um, and I I think, in fairness to the physicians, the founders of these exams and the initial uh, uh, certification holders of these exams, they're doing this for for the reasons of improving patient their patient care. And uh, so I think I think that's a large start. Now, what happens? with reimbursement down the road in the American insurance markets and regulations, will that become a requirement? It may, but ARDMS or Intelios or AFCA, we are not active advocates. That's, mm-hmm. that's not what we do. Uh, if that happens, okay. Uh, but now in other places around the world, whether it would be China, South America, India. Uh, again, I think the, the founders of those areas in the initial Certificate holders, they're in it to knowing that they can improve patient care.
0: That's great.
1: But it does lead to probably more prestige, more patients. Depending where you're at, maybe some more money. Yeah. But uh, but the founding core of it, for the on a physician side, is, is is to do good. And on the sonographer, it is totally it always has been the benchmark of quality in ultrasound, and that that has not changed at all. In fact, that has strengthened because, as I said earlier. The RDMS and the RDMS Council, it is sonographers for sonographers, by sonographers, and there's no other distractions. And uh, I think it it has made it even more powerful.
0: That's great to hear. And I think I said it wrong. I said Intelos. Is it Intelios?
1: Intelios. Yeah. Intelios. uh, There was a lot of research on that. Intel is for intelligence, and uh, Eos is the Greek goddess of the dawn. Oh. And... uh, and uh, so that's where Intellios comes from. And it, it, we did a lot of research around the world, and, and it doesn't
0: offend anybody. <laughs> okay, that's always important. You don't yes, want to. So, given Intelios has expanded exponentially worldwide with physician and sonographer examinations, do you anticipate continued growth with both organizations? And are there other certification organizations that could be brought into the Intelios fold?
1: That's the that's the strategic plan. Is that will. That's what would happen. Ultimately, what Intellius is about is to build a global community around certification, which no one else has really done. There's global communities around healthcare, there's global communities about education, but there's no global communities really dealing with certification and the science and the art of certification. And um absolutely believe there's a lot of growth, especially riding the tails of ultrasound. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of growth, not only in the United States, but but elsewhere and with other healthcare professionals. So, uh, we also are doing, uh, we built a midwife, American midwife uh, certification exam that's just underway. Uh, that'll be very powerful. That's more aligned probably with ARDMS. Um, and then, uh, you know, we are in communications with physician assistants and nurse practitioners uh, as their practices uh, engage more with ultrasound. It's becoming more routine and a lot of other different types of physician practices as well. We also are uh, managing uh, an exam in Great Britain for the vascular scientist, which is a vascular ultrasound professional, somewhat like the RBT here uh, in America, but uh, they're vascular scientists and uh, uh, their practices allow a lot more autonomy, uh, which they do the diagnosis and referrals as vascular scientists. They're non-physicians but uh, we're managing that program. There's a 95% of the content is much the same as it is with in the RVT uh, certification.
0: Now in the midwife certification, are they, um, do they obtain their certification to also perform their own sonograms?
1: Yes, uh, midwives are advanced care autonomous professionals um, and they have, their, it's, it's a very focused, limited uh, content. It's really more of a certificate type of uh, assessment. So it's very limited uh, in what they do with ultrasound, but from that, they do make clinical decisions and uh, uh, and make referrals out for, to, to the experts, to sonographers. So
0: more like position viability?
1: It's position, viability, placental location, uh, and basic biometry.
0: Biophysical profile?
1: They do biophysical profiles and AFIs. Yeah, cool. that's that's 95% of the practice.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, so that's it's a very limited, very limited uh, scope. If you were to look at it and you compare it to the ARDMS, it's uh, it's about. Uh, I think we actually did that analysis. It's about twenty five or thirty percent of the ARDMS, hmm. as far as goes.
0: Interesting, really booming. That's that's awesome to hear all those you know different certifications being able to to come in. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Absolutely, it's fascinating.
0: What is the current number of active ARDMS registrants? Do you know? Uh,
1: In the ARDMS Council, we have about 92,000 active (laughs) registrants. All told, uh, Intellios has about 115,000 active certificates. That includes ARDMS and APCA and everything that's included under all that. Wow. And it's about 20, we have about 25,000 physicians that are certified. Uh, Many physicians are certified with Sonographer for credentials. Um, then we have our AFCA certified uh, physicians as well.
0: Yeah, I think I've been seeing that a lot more lately by talks from physicians who have their
1: RDMS. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. that's great. I think it's awesome that they're wanting to expand in that. Right. Are there many people who have elected to let their certification lapse?
2: No.
1: Um, that was a good. That's another great question. Now our data is showing that uh, year to year we have less than two percent attrition, uh, which uh, for any type of organization like ours is a phenomenal low number. <laughs> uh, so it's been very consistent. Uh, we're waiting for that to bump up as maybe more sonographers begin to retire. What we do know is that many sonographers are not retiring; uh, they they are continuing to work for a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, so we're, we're very fortunate in, in those areas. So, so for us, out of 92,000, we have less about 2% or so per year that do either retire or stop working or go renew, but then, um, you have a bump, uh, there's about a three and a half percent growth per year of standard ARDS ultrasound registered growth. Oh, wow.
0: So pretty evens out pretty much. So the retired status—you don't know how many are actually in retired status versus just lapsing, or do? you have that?
1: Uh, I don't have that number of what that breakout is. Um, I do know that there's not as many retirement statuses as one would think. Hmm. So where are you doing?
2: So for those who do make the decision to be retired, quote—I'm um, curious about. It's my understanding that once you are retired, you no longer use your credential, which I understand you're not practicing clinically, but uh, there is some power behind the achievement of those certifications of the knowledge base that you had up until that moment. And so if you compare it to someone that has like a PhD or an MD, they are always considered those even though they retire from their actual career.
0: Is there
2: any contemplation from the ARDMS side of a way for retired status stenographers to denote um, that they achieve that credential at one point? Like, for example, RDMS R or parentheses retired or something like that would be appropriate. Um, if someone is still maybe retired from active clinically, but and they're not keeping up their certif- certificate, but yet they're still wanting validity for that knowledge base. Right,
1: yes. Uh, retired status is an ongoing uh, discussion within within the organization of how to handle this. To go, uh, to go back to the original premise, we do distinguish between academic degrees and the certification. So the examples you brought up learned a, a PhD or an MD, those are actually academic degrees that do not require any any type of ongoing maintenance Mm -hmm. you're good so there's no you know like both of you i know you have bachelor's degrees sure great you 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 do not need to do anything to maintain that bachelor degree for the rest of your life and congratulations that's good in a certification world that that certification uh, is in fact attached to ongoing learning and uh and it does represent a uh, the ability to practice and so where RDMS has come in is that even if it's RDMS retired, so to speak, that an individual could still use that status to practice. And so for now, the organization has made the decision that that, that, that the uh, acronym of RDMS or any RDMS acronym um, should not be allowed to uh, be used because of because of uh, that that relates to practice mm-hmm. and, and uh, unfortunately there probably are some individuals that would use the that would kind of erase the and still use rdms out there and that that's the danger that we see for public safety and why do that having said that i will say that it's an ongoing discussion of how this could be in the future um and uh but it's 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 well versed here within the walls of the RDMS.
0: Well, we're, we'll keep our <laughs> ear to the ground and see if that changes. That's yeah,
1: a great, a good <laughs> question. Very you know,
0: for those that deserve to feel like they can, they can, you know, clout that that they that they had that at one time and um, not let the small group of people that would like to use it for the wrong reason ruin it <laughs> for everybody. That's true. That's true. Yeah, because some people, they consider it such an honor, which, which you guys feel is a compliment to your, to your business. So we already talked about the annual volume. I think you said 2 or 3% of new people coming in. Um,
1: yeah, it's about 3%, I think. Uh, and yes.
0: So if you were sitting down and talking about like projected numbers and what you uh, think could help increase registrant numbers um, at this point in time, what type of things do you are, are on the docket for that?
1: Yeah, that's a very important topic uh, for us. And I particularly have great interest in this. Uh, As far as ARDMS is concerned, I'll put it in the context of uh, North America, United States and Canada. Um, The number of incoming candidates or a number of professionals going to the field is stable. And that is really related to the number of educational seats that's, that's within the programs. And so we really don't have much control over that. And I know a lot of the educational programs don't have much control of that over right now either. And the real driver behind that is the lack of clinical sites for the students. And so I, I believe a lot of educational programs would like to open up more seats, but they have no clinical access for any more students. And In fact, it's becoming more uh, restrictive as time goes on. This is nothing new in healthcare. So, uh, sonography is not unique in this. This is true for medical students and residents. It's true for nurses. It's true for physical therapists. There's just an overall lack of clinical capacity for training. And so, consequently, in the United States and Canada, um, the pipeline is limited. And so, we're seeing 3% growth. Unless things change, and, and I'm not seeing anything that is going to change, that is going to be quite stable. I hope it doesn't go the other way, where in fact, it's it's going to go the other way, where there's going to be, you know, uh, open seats in educational programs, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But uh, the way uh, sonography is growing, and you know, the, you know, the U.S. Department of Labor, you know, declaring sonography and sonographers being a growing profession, wanted. I, I think I think it's I think it's there. I do think there's a need for more sonographers. I think, uh, etc. And I would love to see educational programs grow and open up even more. Uh, but more importantly, I'm more interested in how we can solve the clinical, the clinical restriction. And
0: we're Which, talking about internship sites, right?
1: We're talking about internship sites where a sonographer student does not. Uh, there's there's no capacity for sonographer students to go out and get. A clinical experience that's required. It's, it's very limited. And so, typically, right now, if a program has 20 students, they have clinical capacity for 20 students. And I know for the educational program directors and faculty, that's a challenge from year to year to even maintain that.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. Because
1: of that, though, there's no opportunity for that program to grow to 30 students. Sure. And uh, that's, that's where I see it as a real, it's a real issue for all, for the entire community.
0: Now, I know years ago, we, when we talked to Nancy Schoenard, she went off to Australia to do one of her clinical internship sites. Currently, when I went in 2005 to Seattle U, they were all um, North America. Yeah. Are there any opportunities, you know, to increase clinical internship sites and looking on the international scope? And
1: Well, I think um, that's a great question. I think, and knowing my good friends in Australia and the UK, they also have clinical site problems as well. I mean, it is kind of a global. It's kind of a global issue. So, you are correct. Back in the good old days, uh, people were going all over the world uh, for internships out of you know, out of programs such as U. S. University. But I think that's diminished because they can't take any, uh, you know, foreign students because they don't have the clinical sites themselves as well.
0: Sure. So
1: it's really kind of becoming a global problem.
0: What do you think can um, can help um, encourage people to take on more um, internship sites or more um, open up internship sites?
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's two reasons for the limitation. One, uh, especially in the United States, it's, it's a liability issue. Mm-hmm. And I think institutions want to control and mitigate risk from a legal perspective. So I think they're putting limitations on that. The second reason is, is I th- also uh would like to see sonographers become more aware of the benefits and uh, the opportunities to become teachers, clinical teachers. Absolutely. And uh, and I think that's that's also something that we that's something that probably can be uh, controlled a bit more. Where in fact, to you know really offer the you know what's the value of becoming a clinical instructor? Sure. Um, And that's hard because sonographers and all healthcare professionals are so busy. You know, you're just cranking out patients. You don't have time to deal with students. Mm -hmm. Um, and that plays a role, but somehow some way there's a balance there. And I'm not sure as a community, we've done a great job of demonstrating how can you make that balance Mm -hmm. to, to do that. So some of it is not in control, such as the, you know, the risk mitigation of legal issues. The other one is, is I think, uh, You know, in your generation of sonographers, Jamie, I think uh, being really proactive and showing the benefits and the rewards of being a mentor and a clinical instructor, I think could go a long way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. How has the gradual establishment of state licensure laws and regulations affected the ARDN?
1: It really hasn't affected us much at all. You know, there's still only one real real in-place state licensure Uh, Others are on the books, but not implemented at this time. But from our perspective, it doesn't really change that much because we are doing what we're doing. Uh What our role is, is that we want to assure that uh, the states adopt the registry. Sure. uh, As the state exam. And um, uh, so nothing nothing really much would change if if that adoption happened, which it did occur in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, that happened. That's fine. No, nothing really changes, other than in our compliance department, is that uh, there's there's a direct communication in case there's a Oregonian that uh, has broken uh, air de certification rules that we let the state know, or the state let, lets us know, so we can deal with it. But other than that, nothing is really changing, and I would not expect it to change because we want the states to adopt the national the national certification program for standards and it is what it is.
0: Well, part of uh, creating the International Sonography Podcast was um, in my travels in different parts of the world and uh, opening my eyes to the rest of the world uh, was like, what is sonography? I, w- I went to Greece with my husband. And it was like, what? And we were in Santorini and I saw a little radiology sign at the little hospital that they had above the thing. And I was thinking, is there an ultrasound machine in there? Like, who's doing OB ultrasounds here? and what What's going on? And, and that was what really started my curiosity about what does my role look like in other parts of the world? Um, So we heard a little bit from Joan um, as she talked about her travels to China um, back in the day and and, uh, from Nancy about um, her time in Australia. So what, and from your perspective, what does sonography look like in other parts of the world?
1: Um, I think that, uh, I think right now and the way ultrasound is expanding, I think the opportunities for sonographers around the world is More than it ever has been in its entire history. Um, You know, I've been I've been blessed. I've been able to travel around the world for you know 15 years, uh, a lot. (laughs) And uh, countries are now adopting because so much ultrasound is being performed. Countries are are aware and want to adopt the sonographer model. Um, Australia, of course, has even a longer history than. United States does with sonographer uh, profession um, and of course North America with Canada but uh, in China for instance uh, they are they are starting a formal sonographer program you know and that took that took many years to convince the establishment there uh, to do that but the, it just has to there's just not enough physicians to do to do the scanning And other places that have all physicians scanning also are seeing the need for some type of highly trained uh, non-physician health professional to, to do a lot of the scanning. And consequently, because of our relationships and our connections, the sonographer model is forefront to them. And right? so they're, they're looking towards that. Uh, Latin America, I think, will come along as well. Uh, there are some sonographers in Chile right now, uh, but uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of Latin American countries would have would will
0: their physicians are still
1: performing. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll take time. I mean, these these are years and years of development, and there's a lot of politics and negotiating going on. But uh, I think you know when China starts breaking through, and uh, those they'll, they'll start taking ARDMS sonographer exams in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one in this one hospital, and there are like 10 or 15 other Chinese medical schools that want the sonographer program. Uh, that'll start taking off pretty quick, and that'll also be a an example around the world
0: of how things could go. Yeah, are you current? Is the ARDMS currently um, certifying these people that are graduating from programs? Or we will.
1: Yep, yep. The, the, their first class will be graduating in 2019. It's a bachelor's program, um, and then uh, we'll be we'll be uh, doing that. And Of course, we are certifying uh, physicians in China on the bachelor on the vascular exam right now. Uh, we may be more coming. But uh, the stenographer program is, I think, where the real growth is going to be because the need there could, there would be a need of several hundred thousand stenographers in China uh, to meet the need of what what they have there. Uh, China is very unique. Um, I think in the bigger cities, uh, the modern hospitals uh, they are as modern as anything you can see in the United States, but it's just the volumes of that. So you know, these hospitals are five thousand beds. The ultrasound departments are 50 or 60 rooms. They're doing 3,000 patients a day. Wow. Uh, um, And 1,800 inpatients, that type of of volume. And so these are 10-minute scans. They're very focused, uh, but they do good work. These people really know how to scan. Now, once you move out of the uh, urban areas Mm -hmm. into rural areas, yes, I think think, uh, circumstances and environments change pretty rapidly. But yeah. yet, these individuals are having access to the handheld ultrasound machines, and and uh, and so ultrasound is becoming much more prevalent because they are never going to have an MR machine or a CT machine, uh, ultrasound. And uh, and so as the costs come down and the barriers to entry of getting an ultrasound machine come down, all of these individuals will be having sonography access to sonography, and that's that's kind of where all of us come in as an ultrasound community in the
0: so, and this is a question that relates to that. But is the American and the ARDMS credential valued by foreign employers, even though it originates from the United States?
1: It depends. <laughs> um, I would say it is with some countries, and other countries, it is not. Okay. Um, and uh, and for those that are not, the way we set up Intellios and the ARDMS Council, etc., is that it offers us the opportunity to customize. Uh, what they need, Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe customize its own certification. But with time and over the long run, uh, our dream is that we, in fact, would have a standardized, the ARDMS would be standardized. And a lot of countries would have to, like, move up to that level. And so we may have to start at a lower level of certification and build them up over time, over a decade, let's say, where ultimately they would be taking the the Mm ARDMS. Then there would have to be some... um, back and forth, you know. There, there may be some uh, areas that the RMS have to adopt to. Okay. So first, contrast is a great example, right? So a lot yeah. of contrast, ultrasound contrast is being used around the world in Latin United States. So there's a lot we can learn from people who use a lot of contrast around the world that we can implement that into the RMS curriculum Yeah. When the time comes.
0: So everybody, we've reached the point where we're going to have to stop this part of the episode and continue on to part number two. So please join us with the rest of the conversation with Dale Sear as we talk about recertification and the future of our profession and the role Intelios and the ARDMS will play in that. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you on part two.